Good day, dear listeners. Steve Preda here with the Management Blueprint Podcast. And my guest today is Ayush Singhvi, the founder and CEO of Build, a software agency that helps early stage founders build and launch revenue-generating investor-fundable mobile, web, and cross-platform MVPs, minimum viable products, in under a month and for less than 10,000 bucks. Wow, that's exciting. Ayush, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. So tell me this story of how did you come up with this idea of Build? How did you come up with this unique value proposition of of launching rapid, inexpensive technology applications? Yeah, absolutely. So I worked with a lot of early stage companies in my career. I was at NYU. I was very active in the entrepreneurship program, like the entrepreneurship kind of lab and facilities there. I worked with a couple of companies over there. And then like, even after graduating, worked in a couple of startups. And what I saw is that, especially like non-technical founders, they would have a concept or an idea and they'd reach out to like development agency or they'd hire maybe a couple of, you know, one or two engineers to build the product. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like there's nothing wrong with going to a dev agency or hiring like maybe even interns to to build your product. But what happens then is that the conversation is usually like very one-sided. So the founders tell like the engineers what to build, the engineers go out to build them. And then because the founder has like such a grand vision of what they want, it just takes like a really, really long time. And then the product that comes out of it isn't actually kind of what the market needs, right? And it ends up being kind of an unfortunate waste of the founder's time and money. And like everybody's kind of dissatisfied at the end. So, you know, what I've come to realize or what I had come to realize was that founders typically need like a thinking partner at that stage, right? Someone who can push back and like tell them that like, don't do this right now, do this later, or this is a better way of doing it, whatever it is. And that's what we are trying to do, right? Like we're coming in as like the thinking partner. And the reason we're able to kind of hit the you know price point that we do is that we have like our own IP that writes code for us, right? So we come in as a thinking partner, we tell them like, this is what you need to focus on for version one, ignore everything else for now. And then we have our own IP that like writes code for us and like accelerates the development timeline. So we only really spend time Uh, like engineering hours, building whatever makes that product unique rather than like a lot of the generic functionality that uh, ends up being a time suck uh, for early stage companies. Well, it sounds nice. And I have some questions about this, but before we go there, just to clarify the topic for maybe some of the listeners are not coming from tech world, they are not Mm -hmm. familiar with startups. What's exactly an MVP and how does one uh, develop one? Yeah, that's a great question. So There are a lot of definitions. The one we kind of adhere to is the MVP is like a product that's good enough, like that's just good enough for you to sell and get revenue off of, right? So what that means, it doesn't mean that the MVP cannot be complex or it can't be refined. It has to be really, really well-made, intuitive, easy to use in this like day and age. But rather that the focus should be on solving the core problem that you're trying to address and avoiding like the bells and whistles, all of the extra things that don't directly move the needle for your business at this stage. Can you give me an example? What does it look like? I mean, uh, give me an example where you identified an MVP and what, what it was. Okay. So it's like you have, as a founder, you have a like kind of a vision of what all of the problems that you want your product to solve. 
but the MVP should ideally be focused on like a particular user group and solving their problems, right? So for example, we built a platform called Break. It's a sales gamification platform. It's a gamification platform, but it, it focuses specifically on salespeople and how to gamify the sales process for companies. Mm -hmm. Right. And when we built it, like COVID was kind of in full swing. Sales teams were remote. The competitive atmosphere like that usually happens in like uh, in an office with the sales team was kind of missing. And like companies had uh, expressed that to founders, like this is something that they're struggling with. And we were like, okay, gamification is a broad topic. Lots of ways to gamify things. But this is an area that we need to focus on. You know, salespeople, uh, sales managers specifically are feeling this acutely. Let's build something for this audience exclusively and make it really simple so that they can log in, plug in their CRM, get their data, and then like just have leaderboards, have like that typical gamification functionality. And like in itself, like that simple product would be enough to sell to these companies and get revenue. Okay. So Ayush, you actually developed the formula for this and uh, maybe we can call it the startup uh, formula, uh, the development formula, whatever it is. Can you explain how it works? I think it was it were three steps that you actually followed in order to get this minimum viable product that uh, people can then generate some revenue and get their startup going. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the idea comes from knowing that most startups fail because they fail to find product market fit, right? They fail to find a customer base that would be willing to pay for the, the product that they're building. And one of the observations is that like a lot of founders want their businesses to cater to all sorts of like different customers. More customers means more potential revenue. Right. Unfortunately, that's not really how it works. The methodology we use kind of addresses that gap. Right. So first you want to start with the problem. Right. And so you either start with the problem that you want to solve or you start with your initial customer. And those are like kind of the two extremes. Realistically, you're, you're probably going to be somewhere in the middle where you have a decent idea of who your ideal customer is and you have a decent idea of what problem you want to solve. And then from there, you start like talking to them, having those interviews, identifying, refining that kind of process so that you know what customers are feeling what problem very acutely in a way that they would eventually pay you to make that problem go away, make that pain go away. And uh, yeah, so you identify the problem you're trying to solve, identify the people, ideal customers that will face this issue through interviews and you realize that and then you execute on it. You build out like a basic version of the product and you bring it to market and you go back to these people and you tell them, hey, this will solve the problem that you're facing. It will cost you X dollars. And again, it's it's like a, it's a loop, right? So you do that, you get it in front of them. Some of them will buy it. Some of them will give you some other feedback saying that, okay, this is great, but if it had this, it would like really make me really happy to pay for it or, or whatever it is. And that cycle is how you kind of start your feedback loop and drive like more like further product development. So what I'm really curious about is how do actually people identify this problem? So is it that they talk to people and then a problem pops up or they actually encounter something and they develop a hypothesis that this may be a problem and then they go out and they test the market, they talk to people, is it a problem for you as well? How does that work? How does it come about? Yeah, so, you know, it, it's like the idea here is like the idea of the earned secret. Right. This is something that I learned at uh, from one of my professors at NYU, uh, Stephen Quian, who taught entrepreneurship. And 
the idea is that an earned secret is something that you learn or figure out after spending enough time in an industry or function, right? It's the kind of thing that isn't public knowledge and only like kind of in the minds of people who have actually done the work and have been in an industry. And the way to uncover those, there are two ways, right? Like you either are in the industry yourself and you've learned it yourself, or you do really deep interviews with people in industry and you try to gather that information, get those, uh, you know, learn about those earned secrets. And when you have them, that's like, that's the gold mine, right? Like you're looking for things that are being solved by like patchwork solutions or like workarounds. And people are like, these are issues that are so problematic that people are adjusting their normal workflows to like, kind of like manage this. Right. And when you get those, that's what you want to focus on. That's what you want to build the product on. Mm -hmm. I love this idea, this earned secret. It's, um, it's basically what you're saying is that the way to do a startup is to get really good at something and narrow a scope of area of work that you, you do. Maybe go and take a job and just keep your eyes open and look yeah. for things that would be a problem that no one addressed yet. And then go out and, and talk to people and figure out whether it's just you or other people have this idea. And then maybe you can uh, figure out some kind of a product out of this. Okay, so what about uh, developing tech products? I, I read uh, years ago that the way to launch a startup and what actually the funders are looking for as well is some kind of partnership between the entrepreneurial person and the, the developer. And, uh, and and it's a really big deal if you don't have a partner, if it's just one person, then you don't even get funding because people will not believe that you can do both the visionary and the coding piece yeah. as well. So is this what you're explaining to me is that you actually are replacing that co-founder who is the coding co-founder with your, mm -hmm. your service? Is this what you're doing? Yeah, I, to an extent, yes. So we do come in as essentially like a co-founder, the technical partner for the CEO when they're starting out. And I think it's warranted because it's so difficult to, especially if you're like a first-time founder who doesn't, let's say, have the money to pay for a technical person, it's so difficult to do any kind of fundraising. It's so difficult to do any kind of hiring on equity because like as an engineer, even before I started Build, I would get like a pitch for a revolutionary startup idea and they would want to pay me in only equity and it would take like 40, 50 hours of my time per week. Right. So like there's so much demand, there's so much noise there that it's really, really difficult to find a technical co-founder without a reputation. So what we are trying to do is just make that easier process. It's not a complete replacement, right? Like you will eventually need uh, somebody who's like working on this 24 seven with you and who's your like real like business partner, co-founder, but finding that person becomes so much easier when you have a business that's making money, right? If you have a product that's making revenue, it's so much easier to raise money. It's so much easier to prove to like technical, you know, partners that like you validated this. It's not just hypothetical in the air. You're not, you know, you're telling them like, this is not, uh, you've de-risked it to a large extent. You're, you're telling them that this is not something that you spend like three months building and then it's going to flop. It's like something that we've built to a large extent. We've validated it. We're getting paying customers. And now we want to take it to the next level and bring like a full-time technical co-founder on. So how do you know when someone hires you, how do you know that it is going to work? So are there some minimum requirements that 
you post to the client and say, hey, you have to talk to X number of people. You have to have an idea that has some legs and it sounds yeah. reasonable. And are there certain minimum parameters that they have to produce in order for you to even take the job so that you can generate for $10,000 the demands something that is sellable? It depends on a lot of things. So to an extent, yes, uh, we do encourage founders to get that initial validation, get do those interviews. After that, like make a landing page where you're selling the product without actually building it and just see how many people sign up and are interested in, in what you have, you know, based on what whoever you think your target audience is and, and so on. Right. So we try to do validation that way and make sure that the founders have that in place before like any development is done. At the same time, we work with a lot of people who've been in industry for a really long time and they know their industry in and out. And they're like, I know for a fact that this is a problem because I've been doing this for like the last 15 years, right? And that's another kind of validation. It's not like kind of the more, uh, you know, traditional kind of lean startup interview random people validation, but it's, it's the same earned secrets. So it, it, again, it depends, but we do encourage founders to get those numbers and get those like leads from landing pages or from interviews before we start developing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there is a founder, they have an idea, they put up a landing page, uh, there is interest. There are some people out there who are interested to, to explore that product mm -hmm. or this potential product. Then you come in, you know, you put together an MVP uh, with this founder within a month and that's it. Then the startup is on its way or there are other things that are needed for a startup tech company. Do you have a startup checklist that you can share with me? Uh, not a checklist in that sense, but what I do encourage is that while the development is going on, go like get sales, right? Um, I would say like even before the technology, sales is the most important thing. Like find customers for your product even if the product's still hypothetical, even it's still like in the development phase, figure out how much they would pay for it, get them to pay in advance, get them to promise to pay for it, do those things while the development is going on so that once it's ready, you have a list of potential people that you can go out to and, and get money from. All right. So um, so that's basically the secret. You need to have an idea, you need to pay customers and uh, and then you can put something together and then that will be enough for, to get those customers that are interested uh, to generate some revenue. Then this, the founder can go out and raise some money and then maybe bring this tech co-founder on and be able to pay them something, not just mm -hmm. sweat equity, and then right. they can get the ball rolling. So that's kind of the right. idea. Now, I'd like to switch gears here is talk, and talk a little bit about the SaaS software as a service business model, which is mm -hmm. you know, all the rage. Investors are looking for companies that have recurring revenue and those tech companies that can create subscriptions, they uh, can generate that recurring revenue. So what does it take? What is the difference between a tech company, which is maybe project-based and a tech company, as a, which is a SaaS model? And how do you intentionally build a SaaS model tech company? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of uh, what you said is absolutely right. Like it, it, from a financial perspective, it makes sense the recurring revenue is there what it allows you to do is have like complete control of your software and push out updates and patches and bug fixes in real time versus kind of the more traditional um, model where you have a product that you're hosting on premise on like uh, customers their own internal server their on-premise server which creates some restrictions but yeah I think it's it's a lot of it is just the uh, the financial aspect of it the 
ease with which people can buy SaaS compared to buying like traditional on-premise software and how you can create an ecosystem around you, like how Microsoft and Adobe have done, uh, where like their your customers are so tied into your product that they like they can't even think of leaving, right? Like Microsoft famously switched from kind of the on-premise Windows, Microsoft Office uh, installation package to Office 360. And they offer so many things. And you cannot, like, you cannot, it's very difficult to work without that subscription on you. So why would the customer be willing to pay a subscription and, and commit to being an ongoing customer as opposed to just testing the product? And, you know, if they like that, maybe they buy a bit more of it, but not yeah. actually commit to being your ongoing customer yeah i think a lot of it comes from like just having areas of expertise right as a small business or small to medium enterprise like if you're buying SaaS, then the person selling the SaaS, the vendor takes care of all of the infrastructure related to like the product hosting maintenance bug fixes updates everything all you have to do as a customer is pay like a fixed yearly or monthly fee right like the convenience that that offers is pretty significant. And this is why like a lot of these, you know, even infrastructure as a service, AWS, GCP, like they've made technology more accessible to the world because they're providing fractional ownership or partial ownership of like virtual machines and like the infrastructure that only the biggest companies could afford to have in the past. Mm -hmm. So basically they democratize these programs that Perhaps the softwares that perhaps people had to get them developed, custom made, or they would have exactly. to buy a year license and it would be very expensive. So more exactly. companies uh, have access to it. Exactly. Um, it, it allows like small teams, like two person teams to be able to buy a software and like build a product around. I'm, I'm this, I'm talking about like AWS and like the infrastructure as a service, you know, providers. But before that, like, you know, if you wanted to host something, you would have to buy your own server. You would have to buy like all kinds of like, you know, networking tools. You would have to do invest so much capital up front before you even like had a validated idea before you could even like bring something to market. So it really, yeah, it's it's all about democrat, uh, democratizing it. Okay, that's that's cool. The other thing I, I have seen is that some companies, they are trying to figure out this uh, SaaS product, but actually they are uh, desperate to get revenue. So they are compromising their product. They customize it to their customers and they end up with a small handful of big customers uh, who have very high and varied requirements and, and there's pressure to, to satisfy it because they are the yeah. source of the cash. And the company ends up growing, but not having a SaaS product. And at some point they, they just burn themselves out. Do you see this happening? I, I do. I do see this happening. There is real pressure if you get a big client and it's not always like the biggest companies that are uh, the ones creating that pressure, right? Even if you're a small company and you have one major client, you have to be flexible and you have to like kind of build your product to satisfy their needs because you'd lose that revenue or you deliberately say no to that process risk losing that revenue and build something that you think would have a much wider audience in the market. So yeah, unfortunately, I don't think there's a formula on deciding which way to go. I think ultimately it has to be like the founders, you know, research and their kind of insight into the industry and their decision-making power on which direction to you know, move their company. Maybe it's also a lack of having a clear vision of a minimum viable product. And then you basically are hoping that your customers are going to figure it out for you. But 
each yeah. customer has a different idea of of that right. product and then so that that can be a trap all right, right so, so before we, we wrap up i want to ask you about how you build your business i mean obviously to have someone who really understands the requirements of that uh, customer that's, that startup founder and is able to put something together within a month you have to have really smart people around you so what, what is the difference between a, a good engineer who can do all these things, who can grasp the the, prob- the business problem and, and build code around it, and and the bad bad engineer, and how do you hire and, and find the right ones? I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head, right? I don't think the difference between a good engineer or a bad engineer is, I don't think it's technical expertise or proficiency. And the reason for that is like, in most cases, you're not really building new technology. Right. Of course, there are exceptions, self-driving cars, AI, those kinds of things. But in most cases, you're usually applying existing technology in a unique or novel way. Right. So what separates a good engineer? It's the engineer that goes beyond like what the technical requirements are and understands like the business case behind the technology. Mm-hmm. And it's this kind of person that can then make decisions when you're not in the room that are aligned with the company's vision, right? And they they understand the founder's vision. They're able to drive product development. They're able to find issues. They're able to like predict things that will happen or may happen in the future from a technical perspective because they understand what the long-term vision is. And I think those guys are are really rare. And that's what like, you know, those are like the most valuable engineers. Okay. Well, that sounds like a reasonable plan. So it's not the technical expertise that counts, that it's more uh, being able to contextualize the problem, being able to understand the business case, and then find the right tools, which are all over, all around us, I guess, yeah. and be able to figure out how to build that that uh, MVP, minimum viable yeah. product. Okay, well, Ayush, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Ayush Singhvi, the founder and CEO of Build, a software agency that uh, builds a minimum viable product for you, uh, for a founder, for under $10,000 within a month so that you, the founder can go and raise money and find a tech co-founder who will then help them build that, that startup. So, dear listeners, be sure to visit mbppod.com, which is the new website with all the transcripts of these shows that we do. And if you'd like a custom operating system for your business that takes your business to the top of the mountain, then visit steveprater.com and, and check out a couple of books I've written on the subject. And also you can test, uh, you can download the questionnaire as well. So thank you for coming on the show and have a great day. Thank you, Ayush. I look yeah, forward- It's my pleasure. To- thank you so much for having me. I look forward to coming out uh, some great startup companies from your workshop over there. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.